Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you somehow found your way over here without knowing what this is about, perhaps through the Promising Young Podcast, then to recap, on this show, we discuss the intersections of horror film and feminism by taking a particular trope and exploring it in depth through a dedicated season. So this is going to be our final bonus episode of our vampire season. We took a little detour for a few weeks to present a mini-series entirely dedicated to the film Promising Young Woman. You can find those episodes on this very feed and on a new dedicated feed that we will set up to itself. Just search Promising Young Podcast wherever you find your shows. But back to our regular horror programming, we have explored the figure of the witch and the monstrous feminine. And for the last few months, we got deep into talking about all things vampiric. We've covered fangs, spiky gloves, blood, capes, and all of their sartorial variations, neck biting, vampire envy, romance, sex, vamsploitation, and so much more. It's been extremely fun to explore the myriad variations of the vampire throughout 20 episodes, 40 vampire films, plus a few bonus episodes, including a hilarious per visit of Twilight, and the first of a two-parter exploration of the HBO show True Blood. The second part of that will be coming very soon to our Patreon page. But even with all of those films covered, which range from silent cinema to some of the many iterations of Dracula and Countess Bathory, cheesy action horror, art house vampires, and some iconic teen vampire action, there was still so much stuff that I just couldn't include in the season. So we're giving a little bonus episode, running down through some of these almost rounds. And joining me is writer, broadcaster, and friend of the pod, Louise Blaine, to go through these films, TV series, and video games that didn't get their own full, that didn't get their own full episode for one reason or another, but maybe should have. Consider these all recommendations from Louise and myself. I'd like to thank our friends at Arrow Video who have supported this entire season. And if you go through our previous episodes, we picked out a film from their massive back catalog to pair with each one of our episodes. And thank you, of course, to every single one of our contributors and guests who have appeared on this podcast picking apart everything that works and maybe doesn't about the vampire films that we have covered on the show. We will be taking a short hiatus and we will be back with our next season, which I cannot wait to get into. We'll be announcing all the details on our social media, so do follow us over and there. And But in the meantime, it's going to be a summer of horror, so there's tons of stuff that we'll be covering. Uh, there's a lot of new things coming out, so do watch out. We will be covering as many of those as we can. And with all of that said, please enjoy our Vampire Almost Rants. Louise, welcome back into the podcast. I am very happy we managed to make the time to record this today. Me too. Hello, Anna. I can't believe we get to talk about more vampires again. This is very exciting because we did have a chat previously that seems to have made a lot of people laugh, which is nice. 
I'm very happy that it made people laugh. I still randomly think about the lamination of Kate Beckinsale after that chat, and it still makes me giggle. So thank you for that. <laughs> but I did, I did feel bad after our last chat because you did not enjoy the Underworld movies. No, and no, you I very, didn't. And you very much love vampire movies. So I felt yes. really bad that we could not talk about films that you loved on the series. So now we get as much time as you as you are willing to give to chat about vampire films that didn't make it into this podcast series. Well, a couple of them did, but we're making exceptions. Yes, yeah. it's you. And <laughs> to chat about our vampiric also rounds for the series. Well, thank you for having me for these. This is very exciting. And I, and I do appreciate you bringing me back to talk about things that I like. Although we are starting with further lamination. <laughs> we are starting with further lamination. Just just to, for old time's sake. It, do you know, it makes it makes uh, thematic sense. And I love yes. this. So yes. anyone, for the listeners, what we're going to do in this episode is cover 13 vampire properties. Not necessarily just films. There mm -hmm. is, you know, we're we're going um, screen properties, and that didn't, for one reason or another, didn't make it into the overall vampire season. It doesn't mean that we don't love these films or that there's not that much to talk about them. There is, in all of these cases, and perhaps we might cover some of them in the future. But this is a chance for us to shout out vampire screen properties that are very worth visiting or revisiting so let's begin with your first choice louise which again is should we call it the lamination of kate beckinsale part two yes absolutely the laminating the lamination no i can't think of what it would be yeah the so, laminating <laughs> so the lamination of kate beckinsale part two is van helsing from the year 2004 Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. And Helsing, you murderer! Why can't you tell the world I work for you? Because we do not exist. My life, my job, my curse is to vanquish evil. We need you to go to the east, to the far side of Romania. A land that is home to legendary creatures. I see the wolf man hasn't killed you yet. Don't worry, he's getting to it. Lorded over by Count Dracula. It is a place where nightmares come to life. And Helsing. He's the first one to kill a vampire in over a hundred years. I'd say that sent him a drink. Now, a man without a past. Do you have any family, Mr. Van Helsing? I hope to find out someday. It's what keeps me going. We'll face an enemy that never dies. In 1462, Dracula was banished to an icy fortress. And then the devil gave him wings. Now, tell me why you love this film. I think I like the idea behind it rather than the movie itself because it's terrible, mm. right? So it was when Universal decided that, yet again, they, they keep deciding this over the last 20 years. Yes, we have these really hot properties. We have these worlds of monsters. We should package these up and serve them to audiences. And every time they do it, it's terrible. And Van Helsing is terrible. 
I mean, it's got all the right ingredients. It's got laminated Kate Beckinsale. It's got Hugh Jackman. It's got hats. It's got vampires. It's got werewolves. And it's terrible. But it's that kind of... It, 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 even when you're watching it, you understand that it's purely been made so it can have a video game, so it can go on lunchboxes. It's yet again the tooth removal of vampires. And I think why it's so interesting is because that keeps happening. Like, obviously, we're going to talk about some great vampire movies, but I think it's interesting to always have this comparison of what Hollywood thinks that they can do with vampires. They think that automatically putting vampires against werewolves and making them fight and having these gorgeous gothic Transylvanian cathedrals of but none of it works. And I think that's always really interesting to talk about it. So it's not like I love it, but mm. I mean, there's even a scene at the end, which is kind of Lion King-esque, where Kate Beckinsale appears in the sky like Mufasa. And it's <laughs> oh diabolical. God. It's diabolical. And we're all meant to go, oh, what a lovely happy ending because she's with her fam. No, don't do that in your ridiculous vampire movie. You've just made it worse. And that's why it never got a sequel. But I do think that it's always val valid to talk about Van Helsing because of how not to do it, basically. So yes, it's, so we're starting with my recommendation of what not to do and moving up from there. You know what? It, it's actually quite fascinating. I mean, first of all, the tooth removal of vampires, just an incredible sentence. I do, I do agree with you that it is really interesting how the universal monster universe, like all of these hot properties of... Dracula, the werewolf, the invisible man, um, Dr. Jekyll and, and, and Mr. Hyde, like all of these classic monsters are consistently repackaged for a new audience. And actually with those, whether they're failed films or successful films, they tend to give us a lot of insight into what people consider cinema at that time and what kind of is at the uh, in their mind and van helsing i remember seeing this in cinemas Louise. yeah i went to see it I, in cinemas. yeah i did too it's, because the idea is great yeah absolutely and it's like it's trying to make van helsing into a sexy you know brendan fraser-esque action here he's played by hugh jackman for god's sake I even rode the ride at Universal. Well, it wasn't even a ride. So basically at Universal, they had, I think they've turned it into their house of, um, it's just a house of horrors now, mm. but they had a Van Helsing ride at Universal oh. Studios. And there was a guy who looked a lot like Hugh Jackman standing outside in a big hat. And then you had to go through and it was all the sort of Frankenstein's monster stuff. And it was amazing. But it it's that that it's been created for. That's It's basically when they came up with the storyboards, they went, oh, that'll happen in the ride. And that's obviously the failed way to make vampire movies because vampirism, as we know, is about touch and sensuousness and taste and desire and lust and worrying about who you're going to eat because it kills people. And it's angst. Vampirism is angst and you can't put it on a lunchbox. <laughs> and did you did you play the Van Helsing video game? What it was really I never did. I never did because... And we'll talk about it a bit later when we mm -hmm. get into our multimedia. Um, you can always tell when a movie is when a, a movie video game has been released that it's going to be terrible. They were always absolutely atrocious. But I have a really good story, and I'm going to tell it. And it's not vampire related, but it is terrible action um, video game movie adaptation related. Basically, there was a Saw video game. 
uh-huh. that came out in, I think it was on PlayStation 2, so it was back then. And there was a horrible mechanic in it where if you walked through a door, you might get your head blown off because it had that shotgun trap. Remember the mm-hmm. one that points down the way? Yeah. So you would go into this, you would you would go into a door and um, you'd do what was called a QTE, which is a quick time event where you'd have to quickly press a button to stop yourself having your head shot off. Mm-hmm. And in this particular occasion, I walked through a door, but in real life, I sneezed. And because I sneezed, I missed the prompt and my in-game head blew up as I sneezed. And that was too much of a correlating thing. So I just turned it off and never played it again. And that's the kind of experience that you get from official video game adaptations of your favourite movies. You get your head blown off when you sneeze. I mean, swiftly moving on. I am commentless at that story because it is sorry. Both... I'm sorry. No, no, don't apologize. It is both adorable and genuinely kind of chilling. <laughs> yeah, it was quite perturbing. I was perturbed. Yeah. I just quietly put the controller down as my character slumped to the floor and I got a game over. Obviously, in a game over, likes Jigsaw saying game over. And yeah. that was it. I, did, I never, never played it again. But yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I probably would have done the same thing, to be honest. Um, and from one but yes back to movies <laughs> from one actually from one universal monster adaptation to another one film that we uh, didn't cover in the series because i had covered it in the previous series of the episode of the podcast is dracula's daughter which is obviously also part of the universal um, cinematic universe but one of the originals so this is a film from 1936 and it was a direct sequel to Todd Browning's Dracula, which was released in um, 1931. It features no Bella Lugosi, but it does feature Van Helsing. And it's it's a strike, it's a really, really striking, really good film. It's sort of aristocratic horror. Have you seen it, Louise? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen. I've seen the original Dracula, but I haven't seen Dracula's Daughter. Does it have the same kind of theatrical toothiness? Because I love the fact that they added in that what they did with that. It was really interesting. Yes, it's very. It's it's not as with a lot of horror from this era. It's it's very implied as opposed to visual, mm-hmm. but it is all about seduction. But it is also it's a woman the vampire and it's kind of one of the first instances of a troubled vampire she really wants to fix herself you know she goes to therapy and it's also incredibly um incredibly queer coded so all of her victims are women it's all about her seducing 
um, and, and kind of being challenged both by the people around her because she's in high society. She's not living in a in a Transylvanian castle like her dad Dracula was. It's all about her being lifted up as this exotic, captivating figure that all all the men want to possess in the film. But she's like, Mm-mm, absolutely not interested in any of you. <laughs> so it's it's works on so many different levels. And the star of this film it was um a contract player on the Universal contracted to Universal. And she is magnetic. There's a lot of emphasis on her eyes as opposed to the fangs and the mouth. So it's a lot about her almost seducing and hypnotizing her victims and it's it's unbelievably erotic this film so it's both scary in a lot of in a lot of the the implications but also just elevates the magnetism of the vampire in this film with a completely different set of of players and it's it's amazing that it's all women this sounds this sounds incredible it sounds incredibly This sounds incredibly bold for them in nineteen thirty six. Like you yeah. wonder what kind of decisions were being made to make this very I mean, the ideas behind especially being a woman mm. and especially with other that's really interesting. I definitely need to I need to see this. Definitely to see it. And one thing that I've always resented is that I came to this film quite late. I wanna say literally of uh, last year when I was doing the Female Monster series, because mm. it is never included in all of the boxes. I have a big beautiful like universal monsters blu-ray box set with all of the monsters it's never on there it's one of those kind of you know falling through the gaps classic horror films yo that's always so infuriating isn't it because you feel like is it is it just because it's a woman like why have you taken this out surely you want to add this in and want to show how you know forward thinking your company was no no it just doesn't ever make it oh it's like female action figures (laughs) <laughs> really encourage everyone to to check it out and then we did an episode on it uh and i will link to it in the show notes as well we're going to jump ahead in time for your next pick in our also mm. rounds louise to 1979 yeah it's time to talk about salem's lot anna thank you ben mears has been away too long and now at last he's come home the men fought at Valley Forge. Daddy, come back safe. Home to the childhood memories, to the old familiar faces, to a life unmolested by time. And with your saints, let him rejoice in your presence forever. We ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen. Home to Salem's Lot, a town too good to be true. What was that? Did you happen to notice the time when the boys left? We shouldn't have gone through the woods. It's a shortcut. They should have been here half an hour ago. Wait! Danny, wait! Something is happening. Something terrible. Henry! Where's Ralphie? Where's your brother? Once the kid disappears, then this. You're not leaving Salem's lot, are you? I'm not leaving. Don't you understand what's happening? Do you? Yes, I do. It's in the Marston house. It's just one of these... Because it means you get a chance to talk about a Stephen King adaptation. And I think Salem's lot is, for me, 
one of my favorite Stephen King adaptations because it's long for one mm -hmm. thing because I think it was it was done in uh, two parts in America for TV so mm -hmm. it was so it's three hours so it gives you really a lot of time to crunch into stuff a bit like it which really yes. does that too um, because it gives you because Stephen King's work is so obsessed with sort of small town rural life. Um, the sort of relatable, all this, all this stuff in Maine. There's this, all the horror is always so relatable, mm -hmm. and it means that when when it comes to your nice picket fence street, it means the horror is nasty. And I think, I think it really, it really deals really well with that. And you, while there are changes from the book, I think bringing the nastiness of vampirism to the town is is just perfect. Do you like it? Oh yeah, I love it. I haven't seen it in a long time, so. I was wondering kind of what do you think makes the vampires of Salem's Lot so nasty? Because I love the way that you framed the, the nastiness of it. Well, I think what they do as well is that that was one change from the book to the movie. And I've not seen it in a, quite a long time, but the change of the being the sort of slick sort of count type to the horrible, nasty vampires that really look like vampires, the kind of master-like sort of stuff, the one from Buffy, it kind mm -hmm. of looks like that is a really nasty vampire. And I think as well, people have real memories of, I know I do, of the scene from, and I think I was, I don't know how old I was when I watched it, I don't even think I was that young, but the brother coming to the window oh, who yeah. has been turned into a vampire. Yep. And it's just at the window. That's terrifying. That's legitimately terrifying. The idea of being safe in your bed and there just being a vampire of the, I mean, of your sibling as well that rocks up. So I think the kind of nastiness of those vampires, I think we probably laugh a bit now. There was an episode of the um, the King cast. I think mm. it was only last week's episode, actually. They had Barbara Crampton talking about Salem's Lot because she loves it. And I think they were saying, oh, you know, we all sort of laugh at it now. I don't. I think it has kind of, it has a sort of ethereal fear to it that's... I, maybe it's attached to seeing it when I was younger, but I, I do think it's legitimately scary and it makes vampires scary and horrible. That's interesting that people would laugh at it. Now, I still think that scene, it's absolutely not funny. Like, it's yeah, still one it's, of, it's it's still one of the biggest horrible. fears. Yeah. yeah, because I think Stephen King does that really well is the fact mm. of, like, he is not, while his heart is always in the right place, he's not afraid to, to kill people who are really important. You know, he's yes. not afraid to kill children. You know, you look at Pet Cemetery, mm -hmm. deeply shocking content in there that when you then translate it into a horror film, you can translate it into something truly, truly, really scary and horrific and unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens there, even though it's, you know, the more... the the. I think people think sometimes vampires can be created more cartoony. And mm -hmm. while that is the case and you end up with it terrible, like Van Helsing, I think there's a real... Vampires can be horrible and nasty. Mm -hmm. and And that's what they are here. That's it's it's an incredible Stephen King adaptation to check out, and I'm gonna jump back in time to 1932 to a Carl Theodor Dreyer film called Vampire. It's on par with Nosferatu, which we have covered in the season as one of the greatest horror films ever made. It's not a, it's not actually a silent film, but. It is one that, much like Nosferatu, has impacted all of cinema and all of vampiric, I think, stories, definitely screen-based stories, in terms of eeriness and atmosphere. And they are, I remember seeing this film for the first time when I was studying film and I was kind of making my way through 
film history. And it was one of those first, Calter de Dry is kind of more well known for, for his films like The Passion of Joan d'Arc. It's one of the kind of greatest, most impactful silent films ever made and is kind of regularly cited as one of the greatest films ever made. And sometimes I feel like we forget the fact that he also made a horror film based on the vampire stories of Sheridan Le Fanu, who very famously wrote Carmilla. And... It's one of those films that still manages to completely captivate you and completely put you into this world where everything, even though the images have influenced further images, going back to the original source still puts you under a spell. It's a really spellbinding film and one where you feel like you might be actually looking at a real vampire as opposed to a piece of cinema because of that disconnect between that style of filmmaking and what we're used to seeing now and i really recommend it for anyone who enjoyed nosferatu who may just be curious i think vampire is probably one of the original films that like i say many times on the show intersects art house filmmaking with horror filmmaking and does so beautifully so i went a little bit hyped now i'm so sorry no, it's good. I mean, I when I watched, I, I, I literally was kind of hypnotized by listening to you talk about it because I saw Vampire, I think, um, around the same time that I watched the original Dracula. And mm -hmm. there is absolutely, I mean, in terms of comparing, there's not really a comparison. Obviously, Dracula is taking sort of Bram Stoker's, it was based on what theatre, it was based on the Bram Stoker mm -hmm. adaptation of the book, which became theatre, which it then became. But I think Vampire has more of a, um it's it's less it's less safe i suppose That's i don't think it feels i think it feels more unpredictable simply because you don't have the the, blue the rules yeah mm -hmm. you don't have that you don't have that existing so i actually i think it is unnerving and and scary and i think i actually really need to rewatch it because it was a long time ago i think mm. um when i was watching sort of classic horror and going through a sort of stint of them yeah. but it it certainly didn't blur into one when I saw it, you know, a lot of them do. You're like, mm -hmm. oh, is that that one? But that one, it really doesn't. That's a beautiful way of putting it, like an unsafe film. And again, going through our our vampire time hopping, we're going to go all the way over to 2009 and talk about Daybreakers. What happens when there isn't a single drop left? These are desperate times. We only have enough blood to sustain our population till the end of the month. We're talking about the extinction of the human race. If a blood substitute is not found immediately, <laughs> this will happen to all of us. This substitute would replace our need for a human supply. There will always be those who are willing to pay extra for the real thing. Yeah, just a bit of a difference. Mm -hmm. Just a bit of a difference. Just a smidge. But just a smidge. But we're so used to our vampire narratives. Um, obviously, we're looking at... Normally, we're a whole bundle of humans and a horrible vampire rocks up mm -hmm. and we have to fight them. And that's it. But Daybreakers goes, hang on, what if everyone has just become a vampire and we're just a globe of vampires and all our tech is all updated and now we all exist together and the problem now is the fact that we're running out of humans uh, and we can't have enough blood because we've squeezed all the humans dry because all the happy meals on legs are running out because massive corporations have sold all their blood for profit so what do we do next and i absolutely and i think you agree with me on this mm. i absolutely love that premise mm -hmm. it's it's a phenomenal premise anna i 
you've put it so beautifully and I completely agree. It kind of takes it it builds a world that is built to the measure of vampires as opposed to humans. So it's like everything True Blood was doing, but taking it up about 200 years in the future. And now it becomes kind of how to build a whole new world order for a completely different species of, of, domi- of, of dominant humans, I guess. Although, you know, they're no longer humans. I think that what's cool as well is there's the tech involved in it. Mm. So they're, all their cars are like UV, UV alert, this, don't do this, don't get out of your car because it will literally murder you because we know you're a vampire. So I love that whole, I love that whole aspect. I do think some of this, it's not as well told as it could be. Mm. Um, it's very surface. And I do think at one point um, we're finding out that obviously the globe is running out of human blood and the humans are kind of hiding and vampires need to find more of them and they're actually looking for a kind of artificial replacement so that everyone can eat. But they keep showing what's happening at one coffee booth. I don't know if you remember this. There's no. these people serving coffee and they put in um like, excuse me, they sprinkle in 5% human blood into the mix. And um, when the coffee start, when the blood, because I'm thinking about coffee, when the coffee starts running out, when the blood starts running out, mm-hmm. um, this like coffee chain are like, no, we're no longer adding that much. So you see this scene where the vampires are all in a queue for the coffee and she hands this guy <laughs> this cup. The thing is like, we've seen on the news that there's been kind of riots in places, but we're about to see in real life what happens. And um she puts X amount of coffee in and he takes a sip of his coffee and he's like, there's not enough blood in this. I want you to add more blood. And she's like, sir, I'm sorry. We only put this amount in now. Like it's in this, <laughs> it's on the sign. And it descends into chaos and everyone ends up sort of eating each other and killing each other. But it's the fact that it all happens over coffee. It's just this really weird way of saying, this is how day-to-day life of vampires is being affected by a coffee shortage. At <laughs> a coffee, I, I'll the blood shortage at a coffee booth it's a it's quite bizarre and I, ethan's quite bizarre in it as well <laughs> i was about to ask you what did you make of ethan hawk who's the who's the protagonist of this and you know his the other kind of main name in this is of course willem dafoe and sam neill so the cast of yes. daybreakers is top oh, notch top yeah, notch sam, sam neill is amazing i mm. love sam neill and everything and he's great in this because he gets to be evil because he's a vampire but he also gets to be evil because he's the head of a global corporation who um just hunts people and decides that you know we'd rather not have a cure for vampirism because then we wouldn't be able to sell them anything so mm. he he ch- literally chews up the scenery ethan's fine he's he doesn't have to he he t- he goes from what he goes from a vampire to human because it turns out if you heat them up enough you you can turn them back to human which I think is probably the worst plot device I've ever seen. Um, but he <laughs> like <laughs> what <laughs> what <laughs> he literally is just like well yeah if you just cook them in like a wine vat it turns out <laughs> vampires will turn back to humans and I was like no no that's not how it works. Don't do that. But, you know, on the whole, I, I thoroughly enjoy this film in a way that, in the complete opposite of the way that I hate Underworld, mm-hmm. I kind of love Daybreakers. And it's made by the Spearig brothers, who made a stack of other sort of subpar but semi-enjoyable horror. I'm I'm glad that you're holding the, cho- the torch for the Spearig brothers. <laughs> 
But no, in, seven in, out of ten. <laughs> in all honesty, I, I, I remember I haven't rewatched Daybreakers in a long time, and I really want to after hearing you, after speaking to you about it, because I do remember really enjoying it. I enjoy a wor- I enjoy a world building film. Yeah, it's really good at that. Even if, yeah. the, if even if the plot is not the strongest, just the world, imagining the world and seeing all of the day to day complications of existing in a world built and designed for vampires. Yeah, it's fun. It's cool. Yeah, D- yeah. Don't, even the music is just predictable Hollywood music. Mm-hmm. It's very odd. You're watching. This is was this even written for you? But okay, it's fine. Sure, carry on. But yeah. <laughs> so I'm gonna take the Willem Dafoe thread. The, the segues between each one of these films are so specific. That was perfect. So I'm going to take the Willem Dafoe vampire thread and talk about another film that I sort of wish we had, we had time to cover on the podcast. And it's Shadow of the Vampire from the year 2000. Roll camera. Iris in. Begin. It's been a fitful night, but you wake refreshed. What is that beside you? It's a book. About vampires. Nosferatu. Director F.W. Murnau had an obsession to create the world's most realistic vampire movie. Meet Count Orlok. The overture to our symphony of horrors. He dug up an actor. I'd like some makeup. Well, you don't get him. Who didn't just play the part. But you're not feeding No, you're not drinking her blood. He lived it. What is the matter with you? Where did you find him, really? From Lionsgate Films and producer Nicolas Cage comes the haunting tale of the uncompromising. You, you will have no close-ups now. The unimaginable. Blood! Blood! And the undead. Academy Award nominees John Malkovich. I will finish my picture! And Willem Dafoe. This is hardly your picture any longer. Shadow of the Vampire. How dare you destroy my photographer! Why not the script girl? I'll eat her later. And have you seen this film? I am guilty. I haven't. I know what it's about and I have had it on my list forever since the year 2000 and it's taken me 21 years to not watch it. <laughs> so let me sell it to you. I remember seeing this film without having, without knowing anything as a baby in the year 2000 in the cinema. And I've been thinking about this film for the past 21 years. It's sometimes occasionally every day I think about Shadow of the Vampire because the premise is literally the most me thing I can imagine where in the making of Murnau's Nosferatu in 1922 F.W. Murnau actually hires a real life vampire so Max Schreck who portrays Mm -hmm. the vampire in Nosferatu is in the story of this film a real life vampire and he's played by Willem Dafoe who you know um, Klaus Kinski played Nosferatu in the 1970 in the 1979 version of the film this is Willem Dafoe channeling both Mark Max Schreck and channeling a little bit of Klaus Kinski and wrapping it all up in a Willem Dafoe bow giving it that extra extraness plus it stars uh, John Malkovich as Morneau and it's all about the making of this horror classic but what if you were actually dealing with a supernatural vampire? So it's both really grounded, really realistic, and it's all about, you know, a 1920s 
filming. And at the same time, it's completely supernatural and tackles, you know, this idea of what are you willing to play with? Like how close to the fire do you want to get in order to make your little horror film or no? How much do you want to play with the forces of darkness to make your little horror film? Is that the question that you ask yourself every day? Is that what happens when you think about it? How how dark are you willing to go, Anna, every single day? Listen, this is not what I was expecting to get from this Also Rants episode, but yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is, Louise. (laughs) I'm here to take you in multiple directions. Multiple directions. We're going to have many tangents. But no, I think I, I love, I think I've always known that there's that kind of meta element to it, which I think was always what was really high up my list. And also mm. Defoe. And I love your mention of a Defoe bow. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> a Defoe bow should be worn by many French bulldogs across the land. <laughs> yes, please. But yes, um, I, I really, really highly recommend everyone check this film out. Anyone who enjoys any of the extraness of John Malkovich, Willem Dafoe, Udo Kier is in it as well, Carrie Elvis, Ooh. Eddie Izzard is in it as well. What? Yeah. So there's a there's a ton of amazing stuff for any and again, it lives in that grey area between art house and horror and it asks a lot of questions at the heart of it about kind of how how much are you willing to give for your art. And I love films that ask you that. While also making a lot of references to making of a seminal horror film. Tick, 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 tick. Nice. <laughs> so let's again speed forward to the mid-2000s with a big screen adaptation of Richard Matheson's epic vampire horror novel, I Am Legend. Six billion people on Earth when the infection hit. I'm a survivor living in New York City. I will be at the South Street Seaport every day at midday when the sun is highest in the sky. I just sleep. Yeah, so this is another, (laughs) this is kind of another Van Helsing situation, Mm -hmm. isn't it? It's a case of Taking Matheson's work, which I think we can already say ends very differently to yes. what I am, how I am, I am Legend ends, and the horrible thing is I Am Legend, Will Smith against this whole you know vampire scourge that has taken over the entire world, and it does it, it turns it, it almost takes the sort of zombie apocalypse route, but with mm-hmm. vampires, and we don't actually see that happen that much, and when we do, it never really goes particularly well because it turns vampires into this super strong, largely CGI horde. And that's always a problem mm-hmm. because it feels like it, it, it removes the fear by multiplying it. I don't know if you feel like that as well, but I often feel like the minute that you turn something into a swarm, mm-hmm. you've completely taken away any element of fear. Is that, am I, it can't be the only one that thinks no, that. No, I'm completely with you because I think especially with the vampire, and you've mentioned it at the start of our chat, the vampire is sort of... I instantly think of seduction. I think of personality. You know, yeah. you think of someone, even the the floating up of the the sibling into the window in Salem's Lot. There's such a personal connection. It's so intimate. Yeah. When you make a vampire into a horde of vampires, when you make them sort of, when you take away the humanity of it, because what's really scary about vampires for me has always been is the fact that you they kind of embody the excess of humanity. 
Yeah. And they're sexy in that way. They're seductive. So it takes a lot of sort of, you know, not self-control, but it takes, perhaps that's not the word, but um, steadiness to resist yeah. their, their seduction, right? And of course, everybody has interpreted the vampire in so many different ways, but the horde never quite works for me because that's, that's zombies and zombies are, yeah. you know, the masses and the vampires never the masses. Yeah, they're always, and also, but I do, I do remember being afraid of the book. Mm. I do oh, remember, yeah. I remember being really scared of the book. I mean, mm. Matheson, he's, he's incredible, but, and, and it just feels like a lot of I Am Legend is very uh, much like Van Helsing has mm. been almost made out of those sort of focus testing screenings as if nothing tested properly and he's got a dog and it's all like, well, we can't have that ending because nobody liked that. It feels like vampire movie by committee and doesn't work quite as well for that. So why did you choose to include it on this list? What of it works for you? Because, because I think it's maths and source material. Mm. Because I want it to be that grim, realized world of what happens when vampires taken over and they don't have the tech that means they can squeeze humans. You know, they, they mm -hmm. take over and they're wild. And I think I wanted to see that from it. So I think I always like that idea. And I think sometimes concepts kind of stand for themselves. So, and also that was the first time, and I think it was lovely, the fact that we saw nature reclaiming the cities which is almost kind of like the um it's in the last of us mm -hmm. there's kind of lovely stuff about green growing in cities and giraffes walking through cities and i kind of like the idea of that so i think that's why it's here because mm -hmm. conceptually it it matters and i think someone could make it really good and do you think it's a, one of those films that might be worth revisiting in the in the context of the year that we've all just gone through because it is a lot about a sole survivor kind of trying to keep his head in place when he is the last man on earth basically you know i think a lot of these um movies hit different now mm. i think suddenly when you're thinking about vampirism maybe not quite as close but we're thinking about infection and losing people and knowing what it's like to have to try and exist somewhere all like locked up on your own mm. what i do think is interesting and it's not really related to any of these but in the sense that i actually messaged you about it the other day there's currently um there's currently global conspiracy theories about vampirism <laughs> yes um which i find particularly interesting because it's all these people thinking that um they use the example of people think that the hollywood elite are blood harvesting I don't know how much you know about this. They think the Hollywood elite are blood harvesting. And this has been happening for a long time because obviously the Hollywood elite look beautiful and incredible. And the only way that that can happen is if they're drinking children's blood or drinking virgin blood. That could be the only thing. And as evidence last year, um, the conspiracy theorists decided that because Hollywood actors were looking a bit tired because they were at home and their, the, the selfies that they were posting <clears throat> looked like they were tired and sleepy and they needed blood and they hadn't been able to harvest their blood because of the pandemic. And that's why they looked shit. Not just because they haven't been able to get the access to makeup artists that they normally need to. So I think there's a lot, the fact that there is currently a global, active and larger than you think conspiracy theory about vampire vampirism and blood harvesting. I think it's called adronocrine. Andre I'm trying to remember. I'm not going to say the, the word in case I end up somewhere on a list, but, um, there's there's blood harvesting 
conspiracy theories that mean that vampirism media can be read in very different ways now. And that's mad to think about, but it's also very interesting in a scary way. It is fascinating. And like I said to you the other day, I thank you for putting this in in my life because <laughs> I am fascinated by it. And also it is hilarious. And do you know what? Would it be the worst timeline? I'm not sure. We've we've been to the worst timeline. Exactly. <laughs> our cities, some of our cities still look like it's 28 days later. So um, Glasgow at five o'clock the other day still looked like 28 days later. So, you know, we're still in the... We've still got our feet between timelines, really. We can go either way. So would you would you recommend people seek out or, or revisit I Am Legend then? For free, yes. Don't pay for it. <laughs> Excellent. Don't pay for it, but do watch it. Because I think I, I think there's always something in it very appealing about an apocalypse of a different flavor, you know? Oh, very well put. So then let's jump just one year ahead. No more, oh, no. No more massive time jumps here. Nope. Mm-mm. To a film, actually, arguably the only film that we're making an exception for because we have actually covered it on the series. But it is a very, very important vampire film. Arguably the most important influential vampire film of the mid-2000s. Obviously, I'm talking about Twilight from 2008. You're impossibly fast and strong. You gotta give me some answers. I'd rather hear your theories. I have considered radioactive spiders and kryptonite. It's all superhero stuff, right? What if I'm not the hero? What if I'm the bad guy? I know what you are. Your skin is hell white and ice cold. You don't go out into the sunlight. Say it out loud. Say it. Vampire. Are you afraid? No. This isn't real. This kind of stuff just doesn't exist. It does in my world. And you were also mortified the fact that I want, I brought it up. Absolutely not mortified. I'm <laughs> so keen to hear, because whenever I visited, I was like, this film has had a huge influence outside of the books and outside of the, um, the, the sequels. In many, many ways, this film has had a massive influence on films afterwards. So I'm so curious why you wanted to to put it on this list so so the first twilight i i had already i think i had all the books been out by this point i had read them all and when i watched twilight i fully expected it to be terrible and schmaltzy but what i got was this really atmospheric little teen film Mm -hmm. from Catherine hardwick which had all these lovely colors and brilliant moody music that basically was crack to my inner 14 year old despite Mm -hmm. the fact that i was in my 20s and I think a lot of people really mocked it, you know, and people saying this is terrible. And it's, I then, while I really, while I enjoyed the movie, I suddenly felt that the movie was suddenly really even more important to defend because I wanted to say mm-hmm. this wasn't made for you. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't meant to be a horror movie about ripping out throats and skin and sputters of blood everywhere. It's meant to be about the angst of a teenage girl falling in love with who I now see as quite a problematic man. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time I was, I didn't think that, um, I didn't, you know, you don't see the toxicity and also I love Buffy more than anything. And suddenly I was like, well, Buffy already did this before, but I'm kind of here for this and I'm here for this wish fulfillment and I'm here for the, the use of superpowers to play baseball. And it's, I don't know, like I find 
what it descended into in, in terms of the later movies. I don't really like the later movies terribly much. Um, I don't like later books at all because of um, Stephanie Meyer's okay. anti-abortion approach. Um, I, there's, you know, th the idea of in later books of um, Jacob imprinting on a child is all just so problematic that at the time when I read that book, Anna, mm -hmm. I was reading it on an old school e-reader. It wasn't even a Kindle at that point. Mm -hmm. And I tossed it across the room in disgust. Oh, <laughs> physically. Wow. I oh, physically wow. threw the ebook reader. And they were quite expensive then, but I was so appalled. <laughs> it was thankfully fine. Twilight didn't, you know, Breaking Dawn didn't kill my ebook reader, mm -hmm. but it could have done. And I guess maybe that would have been worth it because it's terrible. But for that little 2008 mm -hmm. little movie about vampire love, I'm into it. I mean, I'm. I wanted to ask you because I was not being facetious when I said that I think it's generally had a very, very big influence on YA movies, on horror mm. movies, on horror movies that are aimed at teens. What, where do you think that the influence and the legacy of that first Catherine Hardwick Twilight adaptation lies? Mm, that's really interesting because I think because that was at the kind of late i didn't i've not watched a lot of the ya adaptations of the big fantasy books mm -hmm. um i haven't seen a lot of them but i also think rather than individual influences what it did was it told hollywood there was a market for it mm -hmm. and it told people there was a desire for it so suddenly these adaptations arrived and suddenly the young adult books weren't something just for kids they were com they were commercially viable and mm -hmm. they are commercially viable and they are they can be very successful and i think it proved that young girls are an audience that doesn't need talked down to doesn't need spoken down to can can take smart can well pay to watch something that smart enough for them i think proving that that audience was a thing almost it buoys up the rest of the entire young adult catalogue that can be then turned into things. You have got your Hunger Games, you have all your, um, I mean, we've got it just now. What's that new Netflix adaptation called? Something in Bone? Oh, Shadow and I Bone? This, Shadow and Bone. I mean, yeah. we, we're we still feeling the fact of Hollywood recognising an audience. Um, I think mm -hmm. that's, a, I think it's actually, that's actually quite empowering for that audience who, and it's not a case of cheap, um, sort of alternatives or oh we'll just churn that out and they'll like it because there are such rich worlds that that hollywood can bring to life that are all, they've been there for years um that audience is actually now catered for in a way that they maybe weren't before very 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 beautifully put and i i couldn't agree more we're gonna move on to uh a film slash tv limited tv series from the same year called Bathory. It's all too clear what is amongst us in this town. A vampire. The Jezebel is still among us. Secreted within her castle walls, bathing in the blood of innocent virgins. Leave! The truth will follow you! God forgive me, please. I didn't mean this to happen. Oh, God. 
Have you seen this one, Louise? No, you need to educate me. Well, I'm not sure how much of an education this will be, but it's certainly one of the strangest choices on this list because I've always been fascinated by the legend of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. For anyone who's not familiar with that name, she is the the archetype it's of baths the... of blood, right? Yeah, baths so of blood. She, okay, she was very much like Vlad the Impaler, who is arguably the quote unquote inspiration for Count Dracula. Elizabeth Bathory was a real life Hungarian um, noblewoman, and there was a lot of rumors that she was murdering uh, people in her kingdom. Um, Maybe kingdom is not the right word for this. I'm not quite sure of how the royal different steps work. But basically, she was murdering people, mostly young women, and would be obsessed with maintaining her beauty and her youth and would kill them and bathe, drain them of blood and bathe in their blood in order to keep herself young, fresh-faced, and, you know, glowy. But... That's the rest of us just use glossy. <laughs> yeah, <know>? truly. <laughs> there is also, uh, you know, future Jew. That's a much more, um, much blood, much more bloodless approach to get that, that the bloody glow. Yeah. Um. Yep. But that this has been adapted to many, many different shapes and forms, and combined with Dracula and all of that. But there's tons of adaptations, whether super direct or just vaguely inspired by the idea of this female vampire, female serial killer who is obsessed with her beauty. But Bathory from 2008 is, and I say it's both a film and a t- limited TV show because it's kind of been released as both. It's a one of these strange international European co-productions between Slovakia and the Czech Republic and Hungary and the UK. It stars Anna Frail as Elizabeth Bathory. And it's sort of, again, a little bit fantastic, but mostly quite a grounded take. And I've seen it released both as a very long film and as a, as a, I think, two or three part miniseries. And it essentially tries to both combine the legend of Elizabeth Bathory, the, the vampire countess, and the real life historical facts that exist about her, that we know about her. And Anna Frail, it's also, her story has also been adapted by Julie Delpy, who is not a person that I would think would be interested by Bathory, but also mm. did an adaptation from the following year in 2009, I believe, called The Countess, which is completely kind of realistic and I think tries to take the approach that she was maybe someone who was uh, just a killer as opposed to had any supernatural elements at play here. And this one is a very, it's a, it's a fascinating take because it, it includes the legend but it also tries to explain the legend, if that makes sense. I know. I mean, you're going to have to tell me which one it is, because if I end up watching the wrong Bathory for some reason, I will find you. <laughs> I will send you the right links, and I will also yes. link it in the show notes. Um, yes, it has been released on DVD in the UK, and it's actually not that unavailable. It's just mm. not super well known. I think it looks like, and it behaves in many ways, like a historical drama. So I'm not sure why in the the renaissance of historical dramas, kind of sexy historical dramas, this one has been sort of ignored because Anna Friel is a fairly, is a very yeah. well-known actress, at least here she in the is. UK. Um, but I definitely recommend people check it out, especially people who are interested in in Bathory as a historical figure and the the legend around her. Essentially, I'm interested in any historical woman who 
was punished by history and by how we think of her in in historical terms by her own ambition and perhaps ruthlessness. I think it's also really important to that kind of element of vampirism, which actually ties in with our next thing, is the fact that vampirism as the cure for aging mm. and being young and beautiful forever. Because I think that's always, even when you were in a, a sort of teenage years looking at vampires, this idea of being young forever mm. is so alluring. And as we get older, it only becomes even more sort of desperate of, can you just stop me now? Just just stop me now. That would be fine. <laughs> that would that would be great. I don't even mind that I have to murder people. Just Just stop things, please. Yeah just stop and, <laughs> and you know um bathory just a fascinating person like our, i think she was in the guinness world book of records for a long time for being the the biggest mass murderer in history oh there we go i mean we all have goals right? you know girl bossing murder as they say <laughs> hashtag girl bossing as no one has ever said or should ever say again why do i do this to myself it's a t-shirt <laughs> So from one female vampire to girl a much from one from one woman girl bossing murder to another woman girl bossing murder, you wanted to discuss Jacob's Wife, which is a film that is coming out literally now, one of these yeah. days. You know, Anne, I am surprised that you wound up marrying Jacob. Whatever happened to the adventurous Anne? New teeth coming in. What? And Oh, good, you're home. Get changed. I'd like to go out. 40 years I've known this woman. Every day the same. Now, I don't know who I'm coming home to. How much of that could I get? You want the blood? I feel more alive than I have in years. Hey, Mrs. Fetter, you all right? Mrs. Fetter? Yeah, it was out on VOD, and mm -hmm. I think I think some cinemas in the US, but uh, in the UK we're getting it on Shudder. But I'm not sure exactly when it's arriving, but it will be arriving on Shudder. Mm -hmm. And it's basically um, we watched it at South by Southwest. It's a Barbara Crampton, Larry Fessenden, Larry Fessenden uh, movie directed by Travis Stevens, and it is about a couple, an older couple in a in a little small town, and um, well, Barbara Barbara Crampton sort of delves into darkness shall we say mm -hmm. and it's this wonderful um almost 80s-esque tonally very funny but also scary and has a lot to say about aging and relationships and generally um it, it has a lot of sort of um real what i was saying before about aging and looking in the mirror and seeing someone that you potentially don't want to see there anymore and how 
vampirism can potentially be your way out of that but at the same time it being spattery and full of monsters mm-hmm. and yeah i think it's a really interesting mix and at one point barbara crampton dances with a lamp which is really all you ever need for a movie i've also seen this film um i think we both saw it at south by southwest at the digital edition of the of the film yes uh, yeah. of the film festival and oh my god mm-hmm. it it plays with the low budget nature of it extremely well and it's so rich with ideas and honestly it's a vehicle for barbara crampton to be gorgeous charismatic absolutely in her element and her character has like a wonderful a wonderful arc as well i think it's a i think it's definitely a film that everybody should check out yeah i didn't know where which direction it was going to go in when i saw it and everyone should kind of not watch any trailers and just know that yes this is a vampire movie but it might not go where you expect and that's where it should be kind of left. But it is a joy, an absolute joy. Yes. And it's also such a such a great surprise when a horror film, and especially one operating within the vampire subgenre, can do that, can surprise you. Totally. And it says things. I love that it says things. Yes. It's got opinions. It's got things to say. And it does. I'm moving on from oh I'm I'm hoping you're gonna enjoy the segue, Louise. Moving on from one South by Southwest premiere to another. (laughs) Very good. I hate myself. I'm so sorry. Um, Let's talk about Zanka Savetti's Kiss of the Dam from 2012. Paolo. Juna. I have a skin condition where I can't be exposed to the sunlight. You let me in. I can't. Is this about your illness? Yes. Whatever it is you have, I will deal with it. Just let me in. <laughs> Tell me you're a vampire. What do you think happened last night? Are you kidding me? There's nothing to worry about. You're safe. I can't hurt you this way. to you now. I will teach you everything I know. Now, why did you want to include this film on this list? Oh, Kiss of the Damned is really hot. Like, <laughs> Fair enough. Dangerously that's, that's hot. Like, hot. <laughs> like, it's, it's hot in that kind of... It's hot in the way that you really want a vampire movie to be, um, but also manages to be entertaining and to be really interesting and very everyday vampirism kind of Mm -hmm. like well this is what life is like on a day-to-day basis and this is what you're going to have to do but also it's it has great music the visuals are brilliant and there's a couple of bits in it that genuinely frightened me actively actively scared me um there was one scene where someone was being chased by a vampire that really scared me in a way that i didn't expect I don't remember the the lead vampire's name, but I do remember that she's played by Josephine de la Bomb. And what do you make of of her as the lead in this? Do you know, I really, um, I find this whole movie, and especially her, Mm. just really intriguing and attractive. Not just for the hot Mm -hmm. way, but for the fact that she falls in love with the guy, with with the human, 
um, who is played by um, what's it, Milo Ventimig- what's I, it, How do we say his name? He was in Heroes, and I didn't Ma- even recognize him. <laughs> Milo Ventimiglia. I will admit, this was the reason why I remember this movie. Like, I sought this movie out because Milo Ventimiglia was in it. Yeah, uh, and and did he meet all your expectations in it? Uh, no, he didn't. She did. Yes, <laughs> she's amazing. <laughs> um, but she, he, they meet in a video store, mm. and which I absolutely adored. I don't know why there was something so lovely about meeting like the person that you're going to spend eternity with and fall in love with in a video <laughs> store. It was just adorable and sweet. Um, mm. I found that I found it really touching, and she's she's electric to look at. And um, mm. the whole idea of it is when they obviously fall in love, she turns him into a vampire. That's not a surprise. It happens very near the start, mm-hmm. but then it's when her. I don't. I can't remember if it's her actual sister or whether it's just kind of her sister in vampirism rocks up mm. and who just murders everybody and is just leaving bodies in alleyways and just basically being absolutely villainous and how she kind of turns their life upside down and it is the most watchable ninety minutes of vampire action and it also it feels like I would love to watch. I could watch an entire TV series of this lot because they all have. I think they all have really interesting lives because they kind of, some of them have decided not to hunt humans because that's just kind of below them. So they're having sort of nice animal blood and they even go to a party at one point and they're drinking like whatever it is, it will be the, they, someone says it will be the blood equivalent of beluga. You know, <laughs> so I love that the idea of there's, there's, there's vampiric class and how every day would be, especially when you're walking around, you haven't eaten human for a long time. You're basically mm. a vegetarian but you're existing in society and be- being part of society as well. So they have this idea that vampires are screenwriters and mm-hmm. actors. They just happen to be particularly magnetic. So I think that's what's so appealing about this movie. So it's beautiful, bougie vampires, basically. That's my. That's why it's here. <laughs> and continuing on our train of bougie, beautiful vampires... Let's move into talking about the very recent BBC adaptation of Dracula. There are monsters in this world. Creatures that will leave a shadow on your soul. He's a very persuasive man, the Count. He is a monster. One might almost say seductive. This is devilry. It's worse than that. It is the devil. You have no idea. I'm going to destroy everything and everyone you love. And I will drink my fill. I've studied the legends. I know who you are. Spare me. I'm undead. I'm not unreasonable. was a three a three part limited series that was the talk of the internet last year wasn't it yes and it was the talk of the internet for <laughs> one reason which was episode three <laughs> so yep. uh, dracula um, 
episodes one and two of Dracula, I don't think I'm alone in saying, are quite, I mean, they're flawed, but they're quite magnificent. They're very lush. They've got that lovely BBC period drama about mm. them, you know, um, the wonderful performance in, from the, the child that plays Dracula. He's amazing. He's very watchable. And then all of a sudden, third episode, it decides to go a bit meta <laughs> and it brings things into 2020. <laughs> And and the, the the linking thing is the fact that someone I think Dracula's walking out of the sea at the end of he's you not know, been on this mm -hmm. grand voyage and we've seen this wonderful episode on a ship where we're not sure where we are or whose head we're in because he's basically picking off all the the crew which is really exciting and a little bit like a a bottle episode and then at the end uh, he gets sort of sunk in a coffin and then at the start of episode three he walks out onto the beach in Whitby in twenty twenty and it all just completely goes mad from there absolutely <laughs> mad but do you I, I take it you're not a fan of that of that decision do you know i actually by the time i actually embraced it mm -hmm. simply because uh, the minute you, it becomes this kind of future oh we're using this vampire foundation to find dracula and then there's loads of obsessions with selfies and instagram and general 21st century nonsense the only way for me to get through that episode was to embrace it and i think a lot of people just downright hated it they just mm. said no this is the worst thing i've ever seen i do appreciate their discussions and their thoughts on that because they're entirely valid entirely valid but i kind of embraced the big stupid vampire <laughs> nonsense by the end because because you just kind of had to yeah i I'm gonna say it. I'm not sure it worked for me entirely, but similarly to you, I just embraced it. And part of it was because the vampire story has been told in so many different ways and so many yeah. different variations. Being surprised, and I remember being extremely surprised yes. by that second episode, that I was like, uh, I am on a completely different ship. It's like, you know, it's that feeling, you know, when you go on a bus or in a tube and you don't realize that you've actually accidentally gotten on the wrong one and then it's yes. half an hour later and you're just like well i guess i'm somewhere else now i guess i'm going that that place yeah yeah i suppose i'm going here now i may as well enjoy the scenery exactly so i i, I was in for the ride and i have to say one of the things that i really appreciate about that mini series is how funny it was it is i've i've personally found it quite funny it is funny. I mean, yeah. the thing is, um, Stephen Moffat can do funny. He yeah. can. He really can do funny. And I I think I really enjoyed all the kind of the tropey stuff as well. Mm -hmm. The sort of tra um, animal transformations and the yes. sort of sanctity of the, the nuns. And I loved all of that. Like having those very clear vampire rules again mm -hmm. sort of put in place. I, I loved watching, especially in that sort of lush Sunday night BBC way that they're just so good at that things look and feel and it was that kind of high drama period drama so mm. that was the, you know I was kind of swimming around in the blood of those first two episodes and then by the time it came to the third yeah I'm here for it do what you can you've already entertained me with the first two we may as well finish it yeah and and I love Klaus Bang as Dracula I think he had that perfect balance between Gary Oldman intensity and moroseness and sexiness and the very classic Bela Lugosi approach to Count Dracula as well and then obviously yeah. Dolly Wells was just fucking hilarious and charming as heck 
as as Agatha Van Helsing, which was again a twist I I appreciated. I was like, I see what you're doing for. It. I'm not sure it makes total sense, but I am gonna run with this. Yeah, she was amazing. Yeah. She was properly amazing. In fact, she's reason to watch it alone. Really, yes. she's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. I'm here for her. <laughs> so. We, I, I did mention at the beginning that this is not just films. We've done a bit of TV. And now for our last entry point in this also rants list. We're going to cheat a little bit. Yeah. Because, it's because it's you. Because, you know, if you ask me to do anything, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Whatever you want. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> so... You wanted to talk about some vampire video games, and I am here taking notes, literally. Tell me. (laughs) So vampires in video games is an interesting one, because video games uh, run around special powers, and the idea of special powers, as a vampire, you have loads of special powers, but it means that it's actually quite challenging sometimes in video games when you're playing as a vampire because you're completely overpowered. So there's one game that I really want to talk about, which Mm -hmm. is, I mean, it's written as vampire, but everyone was calling it vampire. And it was a relatively recent um, game from a company called Don't Nod. And the really interesting thing about vampire is it's in Victorian London Mm -hmm. and you are a doctor who has Mm -hmm. been transformed into a vampire. Mm -hmm. And like many games, it lets you make choices. So you can, as a vampire, you can go around and you can eat everybody in sight. You can drain them like Capri Sun cartons. And that, <laughs> yes, you can just do that. That's what you can do. But what, <laughs> but what that means, Anna, yeah. is that you can no longer do their quests. They have nothing to do with you in terms of characters because they're dead and you're just killing people. So you're kind of cutting off all these sort of narrative threads But also what you're doing is you increase chaos in that particular area of the city. So the game's kind of broken down into different areas where different people live. And you can be the doctor that you, you know, you said you promised to be a doctor. And in order to do that, you wouldn't have any human blood. So you, to do that, you eat rats. So there's one way, which is you're cutting off all the narrative. You're not really getting to help anyone. You're a complete villain, but you're really powerful because you're using human blood to up your skills Mm. and kind of spec your character out because suddenly you can do everything because you've been happily draining everyone and getting super buff. Or you can just eat rats and keep the chaos low and actually try for a good ending and to be a good vampire. So I think that's a really, I, I find that a really fascinating look into into taking the the lore into a video game because where a lot of video games that will say you're a vampire and maybe you're in a sort of open world environment where you can just that's how you kill people and that's just fine that's how you dispose of people as you carry on but the idea of taking it narratively like like don't not did um into well make your choice and you're not going to like it because i did it a couple of times where i thought i really want those new skills that's going to be like loads of rats i don't want to do that and you would sneak up on someone and then you would drink them. And there was this incredible sequence of drinking them and becoming powerful. But then you'd feel immediately guilty, immediately guilty. And the fact that you were then playing with those powers. So yeah, I find that that's a, that's a really interesting use of it. And it's on, it's on PlayStation 4 and PC and Xbox if you want to, if you want to try it. But it's a, really, it's a really unique game that way because you're going to feel terrible if you play it like, a, like an absolute fiend. But you can. 
I mean, it sounds so up my street. You know, I it's enjoy- so gothic. You know, it's so <laughs> gothic as well, and you know atmospheric I, and cool. You know, I enjoy making decisions that make me feel terrible about myself. So this sounds very <laughs> up my street. Oh, Anna! Oh no! You can always restart or change the save game. <laughs> so it's like you know, you can go in a self-destructive, immoral bender, and then also restart. Yeah. Oh, you could perfect. have like two different you could have like two different saves. You could have a save where you're a complete monster and a save where you're actually being a good person. But that's that's the thing about it. It sort of increases the replayability of games like that. There's so many narrative games, sort of Walking Dead mm. or the um, the Telltale ones where you make choices and there's ones, especially the Telltale ones, it's interesting because a flash up will say, That character will remember this. And you go, oh, oh my shit, God. are you kidding me? Like, don't remember that. And I was one of those people that, you, remember those choose your own adventure yeah, books that you had? Yeah. I would always keep my fingers in like the earlier bits so I could go back. But these games don't let you have your fingers in the, that is terrible. So these games make these decisions for you. So, I'm so I, I'm, excited. yeah, I'm now much more, I have to just take my decisions where they are. Because games like, you know, mm. Until Dawn, which is an interactive slasher game, your characters die because of your decisions and they save immediately and you could never like pull out the plug <laughs> because they'll just be dead so you just have to stick with your decisions in video games and, and that's it and any other vampire games that you wanted to shout out um there's a few actually mm-hmm. there's a few sort of legacy of kane was interesting that was a good vampire game but one vampire game that i thoroughly enjoyed yeah. which was a long time ago and anyone that played on ps2 there was a buffy game and largely, as I was saying earlier, mm-hmm. video game adaptations of TV and movies are usually terrible. But the Buffy game had all of the original cast. It was called uh, Chaos Bleeds, and it had all of the original That's cast. A, a few. I don't think name. Willow was real. I think it was. I think it was fake. I think it was fake Willow, and maybe fake fake Buffy. But Giles was in it. James Marsters was in it. Um, Nicholas Brendan was in it. Eliza Dushku, and. It was. It, it took place in a certain point in the season as well, so it had its own story, and it also had. You also played as Sid the Dummy at one point, which was magnificent, <laughs> and and it had the most satisfying staking mechanic. Oh. So when you were beating up vamps, you'd sort of punch, kick, blah blah, and you'd see their um, you'd see their health bar over their head. I think it was would go mm-hmm. down, and when it got to a certain point, you could hit triangle and stake them, and it, and they went poof as they should and it was genuinely the most fascinating thing you genuinely felt like Buffy it was it was such a good game and I think I still have a tiny PS2 and that disc because I, just in case I ever want to play the Buffy the Vampire Slayer video game ever again from like 2000 and god knows what but yes that's a wonderful vampire game that's a reason to look look out blow the dust off your PlayStation 2 and get staking vampires I love it. I mean, I, I really want to ask you whether there's any other games you want to shout out, but also that was such a beautiful end to yes. to the episode. <laughs> we will end there. Um, Louise, thank you so much for your time and for putting pulling together these amazing vampire films that for one reason or another we just have not covered yet. I might just I'm I'm a, I'm greedy. So I might just do a couple of them just because yeah do it what's gonna stop you your podcast i mean that is true that is true that is true but definitely i will link as many of these as are available on vod and streaming services in the uk in the show notes um especially kind of the new ones coming out like jacob's wife and um 
where to to wrap up louise where can people find more of your work online and what are you up to now that you people should follow oh um you can find me on twitter at shiny underscore demon and i think i'm the same on instagram um in terms of other work just now um my i have a radio 3 show on the sound of gaming so if i sound very enthusiastic about video games it's because i really really am uh, on the first saturday of every month on radio 3 at three o'clock i have an hour-long show where i take people through a specific genre of video game music so recently we did special powers we did a bafta episode and actually, our next episode is a horror-themed episode, which is coming out on the 1st of May. So don't miss that, because I've also got some references to movies as well, and the sort of interrelationship between horror games and horror movies, which is actually sometimes a little closer than we think. So I'm super excited about that. And also, thank you, Anna, for having me. I've really appreciated this, and I'm, I'm now feeling truly educated in those movies that I've not seen, and I'm going to put them on my list to watch next. So I really appreciate that. Oh, well, you know, let me know as soon as you watch them, because I want to hear all your thoughts about the ones that you have not seen but thank you louise as always and um i'm sure we'll speak soon in another episode very very soon i hope so and that's it for this episode of the final girls podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your shows please do leave us a review on apple podcast it genuinely helps a lot you can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter to receive a newly commissioned essay and curated horror treats in your inbox every week. And of course, follow us over on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at the Final Girls UK. And if you want more bonus content, and trust me, you want to listen to the Twilight episode, head over to patreon.com forward slash the final girls, where we post all additional bonus materials, including Twilight and that second parter of our True Blood discussion. You can also follow Louise at shiny underscore demon, and I am on Twitter at Anna B. Demented. Thank you for listening and thank you so much for joining me in exploring the vampire in horror film and TV.